Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darker Audio Podcast. With me this time out is one Karl Heinz Fink. Hi, welcome. Now, you're sitting in Essen, is that right? You're in yes. Essen? Now, Karl Heinz, you're a bit of, um, a, I wouldn't say an enigma, but your name is probably not as well known as it should be in hi fi circles, as far as I'm concerned, because you've actually as well as running your own um think loudspeaker company you also do third party work for you know very very um famous manufacturers in both the hi-fi world and the car world is that right uh, yeah i mean that was always our main business um i had another brand that i owned at least uh, for a bigger part alr jordan but that was in the 80s mm-hmm. Um, and then I had to decide whether I'd be managing director of a loudspeaker company or continue to do my engineering. Um, and I found engineering a lot more attractive. <laughs> right. So is it, is it, did that sort of give birth to the Fink Team Consulting company? Yeah, I think Audio Consulting is the company that started, uh, oh, God, this is almost it's more than 30 years ago. Um, wow. I came back from a magazine. I was working for a German Hi-Fi magazine. Um, mm-hmm. And I came back here to my place because this was in Stuttgart. Um, and then somebody called me and said, can you help me to get my my loudspeakers ready and put it into the market? Um, and that's where I started with the consulting business. And um, that lasted three years. Um, yeah, and that mm. was the beginning of the engineering company, more or less. Right, and and so in more recent years, you've you've done work for Cure Acoustics and Wharfdale, which I mean they've just released the Diamond Twelve series, which I know you were instrumental in um, designing. I'll, I'll come to that in a moment, but I'm interested in the, in the work you've sort of done in the say maybe the last ten years for Cure Acoustics and others. I mean. What can you tell us about that? I mean, Q Acoustics um, started when Mission went bankrupt. Um, because before mm. that, I was working with Mission. Um, so together with uh-huh. uh, ah. Peter Camo, we worked on a lot of loudspeakers. And there was a nice combination so far because we have been the more technical guys. Uh, but Peter was the guy, you know, in front of the audience and the guy who listened to it. And so that was a, a nice cooperation. But then, unfortunately, um, yeah, they stopped and they went bankrupt. Um, in that oh. period of time, the the entry-level loudspeaker range of Mission uh, was sold mm. by the company that came before Armour Home. Um, so... Uh, okay. So and 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 when they suddenly lost uh, a big part of their turnover with loudspeakers, they were looking for a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to get loudspeakers again. Um, and mm-hmm. so two people from the original mission project, Karen Dunk, the designer, and myself, have been asked um, to do a range of loudspeaker. Um, yeah, that could replace the this range uh, of mission speaker that wasn't available. And that was exactly what we did. And that was the starting for Q Acoustics. I really didn't know that. That's fascinating. So I'm going to guess that you're the guy behind the, uh, the gel core um, idea. Is that right? You know, where you have the, the Q Acoustics, 
I don't know whether they still do it, but they did for a while. Had a sort of a layer of gel between two two pieces of MDF yeah, yeah, for the sure. baffles. Is that right? That is, you know, that is uh, cabinet vibration is a sort of hobby, um, and it's something mm. that we that we did here really um, for a long time. Um, the thing is, then when you're a consultant, um, you know, you always want to get things ready in time because that's mm. what you know you get the money for that. Um, and we mm-hmm. could do a lot of drive unit simulations and cabinets and crossovers. But every time we put the whole thing into the listening room, it could be good or bad. Uh, good if you are lucky mm. enough that cabinet vibrations are under control. Bad uh, in case they are not. Um, mm. And I found that really frustrating um, because that was you know, just trial and error all the time. Um, and we started mm-hmm. a, a project over a period of almost three years where we investigated mm-hmm. all sort of materials and combinations. Um, yeah, just to see how we can make this design a little bit more predictable. Um, and the mm-hmm. concept was named concept because, um, it was really a concept <laughs> loudspeaker. Um, and I must say that I offered the, the principle to a, to a German company here that we know because we have done something for them and we use mm-hmm. the new cabinet, um, to show them the benefit, um, of this technology, but they obviously didn't understand what we are trying to do. Um, and so right. I, I made a, a version. It was Q acoustic sort of, uh, drive units send it over, and that was then the beginning of the concept range um, using this uh, gel core um, technology or, you know, technology is always a big word. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, but I I guess you use the word concept. But do, so do Q-Acoustics still use that gel core or they evolved to something else? I'm not quite sure. I mean, they still use it. I mean, you know, Mm. the, the loudspeakers are running. I don't know what they mm. do on the new loudspeakers. Um, I don't know, uh, but I cannot stop them using the same material. No, I, w- <laughs> I wasn't suggesting that for a moment. But, but I, I guess so. The last two, the two last two big projects you worked on for Q Acoustics were the the Concept three hundred and five hundred. Yes. Is that right? So they're more more of their sort of high end um, design. Yeah, I mean, you know, Q Acoustics always had this. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 um, range. Uh, and everybody, mm. you know, accepted that they do very good entry-level speakers. Um, but yes. I thought, you know, that it's not really fair because, I mean, we could do a lot more. Um, and and 500 was just an idea um, to see how mm. far we can get with, uh, you know, with the concept that we had in mind. And it was not easy. Mm to convince um, people that this makes sense, uh, a loudspeaker in this price range that was so much more expensive um, hmm. than the standard range that they had before. But I mean, I mean, from an aesthetics point of view, especially the stand mount 300, I mean, I know, I mean, you've told me before that you, you were no longer working on the project when the stand came, when the stand was ready, but together, the two, the sound and the looks, I mean, I had a pair here for a while. Actually, I borrowed them from Max Schlunt, and they, ju- they were just absolutely outstanding, just in in every way, like the, the complete package, because 
I'm very big into aesthetics of loudspeakers because I see them as, you know, furniture that makes sound. You've got to look at them. So I want them to look as as good as possible and sound great as well. I mean, maybe I'm being too demanding. I don't know. But I think they really knocked it out of the park with that, or rather you did or they did. I don't know who to credit here. but <laughs> I mean, they, you know, there's an idea behind the stand. Um, and Kieran mm. made, came up with this idea. Um, the idea was to have mm. a stand that would radiate as little as possible. Um, because in many mm. stands, you know, you can really measure and, and, uh, you don't even have to measure. You just hear the ringing, uh, that some of the stands are mm. doing. And the idea was to have as little as possible radiating. And that was the idea from Kieran mm. and it worked very well. Not easy to make. And maybe not easy for some people to integrate in a more conventional um, living room, but for me it's fine. Agreed. Yes. You know, I mean, I like. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, my. I mean, did that? Please. <laughs> did that concept of stand radiation um, dovetail into your sort of specialist specialized interest in cabinet resonances? I mean, you're talking about resonances all round, really, aren't you? From the stand and the cabinet. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you have a. When you have a cabinet and, and a smaller box that has less problems with cabinets, and then you put it on a lousy stand, that really doesn't help. Mm. <laughs> so, sure, <laughs> right. But I, I wonder, like, does how does that work when you're doing the floor stand version, the 500? I mean, obviously, you don't have a stand to worry about, but you have more cabinet surface area that you have to control, right? Yeah. But is that is that a more is that more of a challenge? I, mean, I guess it must be. Yeah, I mean, we we used our we used our gel core um, idea and we made it um, three layer instead of two, at least for most of the panels. Um, and then we had mm. this bracing. And what we do, we put all the construction into a, a software into a, a simulation, and then we start to mm. change braces and thickness and dimensions. Uh, just to get mm. uh, the best result out. It's challenging because you have more. Um, on the other hand, you know, mm. um, w once you have it in software, it's relatively easy to do. Oh, so you can model the whole thing in advance and before you even, yeah, yeah, sure. you know, sure. turn on a machine. Okay, right, okay. That is interesting. <laughs> well, it's um, very easy. Just what, just extremely lazy. <laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> So what can you tell us about your sort of jump or step to Wharfdale? I mean, did, did they come to you? You go to them? How does that kind of work in the behind the I scenes? I mean, actually, that was the third project we did together. Um, mm. We did one for, I think, what was the first one? I think that was basically drive unit design. Um, so together with Peter Como, because, I mean, to speed up the process, we did a lot of the drive unit. And mm. um, the second one, we did Mission, the LX, LX2. That was mm. also one of the smaller two-way one um, that we did. Mm. So this is not the first time we worked together, but it was the first time for Wolfdale. Right. Okay. So you're, you're talking about IAG yes. in general yes. there with Mission, yes. because IAG own Mission now, even though they went bankrupt and they've been resurrected. Okay. So... so so they came to you and said, look, we want to completely redo our 
Diamond series, like top to bottom? Um, or did you suggest that they should redo the whole thing? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you see, I mean, I was I was working 10 years with um, Q Acoustics. And the problem mm. is when you have a kind of history, then it's really difficult to change things. Um, you know, mm. nobody wants to take a risk. And so the next model looks like, you know, the next generation from the previous one. Um, mm. And when we spoke with Wolfdale, I said, hey, let's make really, let's take a white piece of paper, a clean sheet, and, and see what we can do. You know, I mean, of course, every cheap loudspeaker is a compromise, but what mm -hmm. we can do on an on a, on a expensive loudspeaker with J-Cores and all sorts of things, we can, of course, do also with a cheap loudspeaker. Um, you cannot mm. get the vibration down to the same level that you do with a high end, but you can also mm. optimize that one. Um, and that was actually, you know, what I, what I introduced to Wolfdale and they liked the idea. And that's how we started. And so you, you started with sort of internal bracing and cabinet resonance minimization? Or? No, I mean, I started to sell them the idea. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh, I see, I see. No, I mean, uh, right, okay. I mean, uh, the second thing is um, that we that we started with was the drive unit. Um, mm. You know, polypropylene is is a is a material that that went out of fashion a long time ago, um, mm. and it went out of fashion because in the same time, um, manufacturers came up with a high damping um, surround. And if you look at the mm -hmm. typical classic British loudspeakers, they have a surround that you push, and then you can wait for thirty seconds to come that it comes back. Um, so there's mm -hmm. a lot of hysteresis in it, and that that ended up, uh, and you ended up with loudspeakers with polypropylene cones that were sounding really sleepy and and really, you know, <laughs> not very exciting, um, and. I wanted to do a polypropylene one, but with a low damping surround, so that it sounds snappy and no dynamic. But I, I like really, well, I like the, the smoothness and the, the nice character of, of the mid range. Um, mm. So we said, okay, then let's do it. I mean, all the rest, like aluminium compensation rings in the magnet system, we used, of course. But we did the new cone uh, surround, and we worked with those ribs that you can see that are not really decoration, mm. but they they gave us you know a chance to change the um, to change the stiffness um, on the cone, mm. yeah, in in a very easy way because the the cone costs the same with or without. So was it quite hard? Was it a challenge to convince the guys at Wharfdale to to sort of essentially ditch Kevlar? No, no. Okay, because they've been, they've been using it for a while. I think with the nine, the, the Diamond Nine, the Diamond Ten, which I, I mean, I like both those speakers in different ways. But um, I never, I never got to hear the eleven though. Yeah, no. I mean, Kevlar. You see, at 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 the end of the day, we want to have a nice sounding easy for the ear loudspeaker. Kevlar is not always easy to control. 
um, mm. and and polypropylene or um, clean. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, they asked me not to say polypropylene, uh, clarity or whatever it is called, uh, because it's a mixture right. with some fillings and so on. Um, yes. So that is easier to control. And um, when you do a loudspeaker in, in this kind of range, I think it's always a good idea to have something um, that you could easily control. Right. Okay. So is is that? I mean, so for the the new Diamond series, the the uh, the twelves, you started with this Clarity prop polypropylene mix driver, and then progressed from there. I mean, what what came next? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the old days, you you took a driver and then you designed a, a cabinet around it. Uh, nowadays, mm -hmm. you have a cabinet and then you design the driver um, that fits to it. Oh, really? I mean, you know, I think you like it, but the design of a loudspeaker um, is extremely important because there are more people that have mm. good eyes than good ears. Mm -hmm. uh, no, but I mean, right. a loudspeaker has to look nice. Um, and, you know, yes. if it's ugly, it's difficult to sell. Um, and I wouldn't use mm. it in, in my place. So having a good design um, is really a starting point. I see. So basically, you were you were effectively given the sort of rough cabinet proportions and and maybe the finish as well before you decided to put the drivers inside. I mean, that de depends on it. I mean, the finish is is of course something that you discuss at the very beginning um, because mm. you know you have to work on a budget, and that means you have to know how much budget you need for the cabinet, how much for the crossover, how much you have for mm. drive units, and altogether, it's then the final price. Um, right, and and that is that is something that you really you have freedom in in a way, um, you know. I mean, in old days, very often the magnets have been too small for the cabinets. You have this really sloppy, uh, slow base, um, and mm. and nowadays, you know, you you just make the magnet a little bit bigger, and you see how it fits into the cabinet that you have. Um, uh -huh. and, and, and so this is, yeah, it is really, you know, it's, it's on a white piece of paper that you do the basic, uh, design of it. And then you start, mm. once you have it all together, this was my, my <laughs> Google, you know, <laughs> your Google does not understand you oh. <laughs> because I wasn't talking <laughs> to <this> Google thing. <laughs> Yeah, clearly it's listening. Um, and what about the tweeter? I mean, was that a given, or did you get to you know choose from a range of possibilities, or did you have one in mind? I mean, they they offered me you know to use whatever I wanted, but I must say that I mm -hmm. the tweeter the the material that they used for the dome, I was fine, so there was nothing wrong mm -hmm. with that. And what we did was removing this kind of um, yeah wave guide. That was on the original one. Um, mm -hmm. so I like to have exposed domes whenever I can. Uh, we changed mm -hmm. the way, the, um, you know, the ventilation below the surround and, and all those things that you do to get the tweeter uh, to sound nicer without really changing the cost. Um, right. So, and, and then we, you know, we, Actually, we, we, we changed the whole thing from, from the backside, more or less. 
from the front. It mm. looks the same because it's the same material that they used before. But it was good. It was good and consistent. What else do you want? Sure, sure. So you then you set to work on it in, I guess, your specialized area of internal bracing, right, to minimize cabinet resonances. At least that's what the press release says, yeah. right? It says extra attention paid to uh, internal bracing. And I guess that, yeah, that talks to your expertise, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, as I said, this is sort of hobby. Um, and, and I mean, there are things like um, the, uh, the cutout from the woofer. We always glue mm. um, below the, the top plate because this is free mm -hmm. material that you have and it helps to make the, um, the top panel quiet. Um, I, I always, you know, I always do this, this experiment um, when we start such a project. Um, and I got this from Steve Harris, you know, the PR guy that um, worked for so many companies, including Think Team for a long time. Um, mm. And this is, you know, you listen to a loudspeaker and you listen to the height, you know, the stage height. And then you take mm. two books and they put it on top. And when you can hear that the stage is getting higher, you know, the singers are getting mm. taller. And then, you know, you have a panel, you have a problem with your top panel. Um, it, it's talking too much, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. And, and, and you know, with this with this additional uh, piece of wood, you make it better without really adding any cost. I mean, it's a little bit of glue. The wood is there anyway. Right. Um, right. Okay. And and we like this, um, yeah, bracing from one side to the other side. Uh, mm. Very often, people use this um, figure of eight bracing. You know, where you have a mm -hmm. shelf and then with four holes in. The uh, mm -hmm. problem is that when you have something on the front panel, it really transfers everything to the side and to the back panel. Um, mm. So that is that was the idea. And that is something that we learned because I, I don't know for how many years I was using figure of eight braces. Uh, nowadays, mm. I don't. Um, and again, we did that also on the small loudspeaker as good as it was possible. Um. Mm. So when you're when you're developing a speaker like this, Karl Heinz, I mean, obviously you're using. I think you use. Do you use Klippel measurement system? Is that right? I think that's what you use, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was one of the first Klippel uh, users here in Germany. Um, mm. So we are. I think we have three systems right now, and um, mm. the QC system. So you know, this is something that we already used from, I don't know, when we started with this. Um, mm. And I think this is a standard nowadays when you um, when you measure loudspeaker that you do the, the dynamic parameters and you see how the suspension or the magnet system works. Um, mm. We What we also do is, is a lot of laser scanning uh, there's a laser mm -hmm. scanner from Clipple as well, but that is only for drive units. For cabinets, we have mm. a Polytech that's a bigger one um, to do the cabinets. So it's not so common in, in our industry. I know Bowers and Wilkins, they have one. Um, and, well, that's it. <laughs> I don't know where else goes. Right. And, and do you, I mean, do you produce a, a whole 
new set of measurements every time you make a small change or do you kind of know which way things are going to go and then you just sort of confirm at the end? Um, you know, once the loudspeaker is in the system, so that, mm. the, that for example, the crossover is in, then, of course, you, you do a change and then you put it into the simulation and you see what it's changing. Um, I mean, mm. after, even after so many years, you know, you can fool yourself. And I really don't want to, you know, spend days and days going into the wrong direction. And sure. um, so having in parallel the simulation and look at it uh, is never a bad idea. So it essentially tells you if you're sort of veering off track or yeah. if, you're, if you're heading down a path that's going to lead you towards a mistake, um, possibly. I'll give you an example. Um, mm -hmm. The most critical area is normally... Um, around two or three kilohertz where the crossover frequency is. Mm -hmm. And um, at the beginning, you try to make that flat and say, ah, oh, you know, I want it flat. And when you listen to it, you find out that it's too bright, it's really, you know, snapping at you. And, mm -hmm. and, and you start putting this level a little bit down. Um, I mean, this is what people call the BBC dip because they started mm -hmm. that, that they made this a little bit, you know, a little bit reduce the energy over there. Um, mm. When you go and measure the loudspeaker from on axis and out of axis and, and you put them together, you see that um, out of axis, the area that was flat in the moment you designed the crossover on axis was coming up. This is a side hmm. effect of the of the cabinets, you know, having a real world baffle and are not a round ball or whatever. Um, hmm. So when you play with these, you know, capacitors and resistors to get this area right, you always hmm. have to measure them out of axis to see if you're not running in the wrong direction. Um, and so the measurement helps. And of course, when you start, you do the measurement, and when you see already, ah, the level comes up, you reduce it, you have a better start. Um, but mm. we always control that one. But you'd have to listen to it to know for sure, yeah. right? I mean, uh, to get that, you know, to make that absolutely clear, everything that we do on measurements is to mm. give us more time for listening. Right. Um, I mean, the measurement can do a lot, but... A loudspeaker, you know, that sounds nasty and, and one that I like, are not necessarily mm. completely different in measurement. You know, when, when, you, when you go at something like one and a half kilohertz and you have over a really wide area, half a dB too much, mm. you don't see that really on the measurement. Yeah, it really looks slightly different, but uh, in Listening, it's it's completely different because this is the most sensitive area, and it makes the difference between shouty and and really screaming sometimes, or civilized. So you have to listen because the measurement doesn't really tell you what you're going to hear. I mean, it. You know, when you get more experience, of course, you know it's getting easier and easier. Mm. Um, 
But the final really fine details and the compromise that makes you feel good during the listening, the measurement doesn't tell you. Right. So there are some things that the measurements can't tell you that you have to listen for. Right? Yeah. I mean, look, I never, I never managed to, to, to find a measurement um, to, yeah, to show me that cables make a difference. <laughs> right. And I still can hear it. Or capacitors that we use. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you learn that, that polypropylene capacitors are sounding nice. Um, but why one polypropylene capacitor sounds nicer than the other one is really difficult to say. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, we were talking about Jurgen Rice before from MBL, and he was telling me a couple of years ago that, um, you know, there are certain, com you know, minor component changes that he makes inside his electronics that, he has to listen for the differences because they essentially measure the same. Yeah. Um, but only through listening can he discern which one he likes the most. And I would, yes. it's probably the same for you, I would think, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Right. So it's a combination of measurements to guide you, but fine, I guess final voicing, final decisions, the smaller, the minor details that make or break a speaker, you'd have to do in the listening room, right? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, the, the port lengths, you know, sometimes we are playing around with a few millimeters more or less. Mm. You really don't see anything on the measurements. Uh, but sometimes it, the timing is, you know, just there. Sometimes it's not. Right. Interesting. Now, before you, because we're talking about, um, I mean, I'm looking at a pair right now of Diamond 12.1 from Wharfdale. And I think they sell for, is it 200 euros or 250 euros? Something. It's, I mean, they're super, super affordable. And yeah. you mentioned a very important word earlier on, compromise. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in knowing sort of what, because you I mean, I guess everything that you design, no matter what price point, eventually you're going to hit a wall of compromise. But I guess you're going to have more compromises to make in a 250 euro speaker than say a 5,000 euro speaker. Um, could you talk to, to what, well, could you explain a little bit about, you know, where those <laughs> compromises really begin to hurt, you know, in terms of to the tough choices you have to make? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example of what we did on this, on this loudspeaker, mm. um, in terms of inductor in, in the crossover, um, and I think I had it the first time during the period of the Concept 500, mm -hmm. that we brought the um, the distortion down a lot. And mm -hmm. when we made the crossover, the bloody thing had more distortion with crossover than without. And <laughs> <laughs> and finally, you know, we found the inductor, and this was really a nice uh, laminated steel core inductor. Um, with just doing some some distortion, hmm. um, and you know you can do whatever you want um, as long as you don't use one of the very expensive Mundorf um, laminated cores, and even they do it. Uh, you have this kind of always there distortion in this kind of inductor. Hmm. The good thing is that you know you can hammer it like mad; it will never give you any saturation. Mm. If you use um, a ferrite core or ferrite powder or iron powder, they have normally lower distortion at small signals 
but they can mm. go into saturation and then from one second to the next one they really you know do nasty things mm. um, so you have to sit there and say okay what do I want you know distortion all the time um, or no distortion at low levels but nasty one at high levels huh. <laughs> and we did on the on the on the diamond we did something um, that is less of a compromise, uh, we mm. use air cores because mm. air cores don't have any, any saturation. So they mm. will never have distortion. They have the, the negative um, or the negative side of air cores is that they are really big and expensive. Mm. Um, and so normally only in big higher loads because we use them. Um, but, you know, and now I'm coming back when we start the design. Um, when we do the design, we, um, we simulate the drive unit and we simulate the cabinet. Mm -hmm. And then we add an inductor, a resistance of, of such an inductor um, that is, I think, normally 0.3 ohm we used for many years. Mm. Because that is... Actually, what you get into a box, cost-wise, it's okay, and it's a good compromise. Mm. And then I said, hmm, I mean, if I go for an air core with 0.3, too big and too expensive. Um, so what's about if I go for 0.6 and 0.7? Because then mm. I need thinner wire. But then, of course, you see in the alignment um, that the, yeah, the bottom end doesn't look that because, I mean, this one ohm, you know, kills all the damping factor that you get from your amplifier. Mm. Um, but I can compensate that. So because I have influence on the drive unit and I can change the magnet of the drive unit and make it bigger. And if I make it slightly bigger, I compensate for the resistance um, of this air core. Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah, your compromise is that you use a larger magnet. Um, the benefit is that you have air core without any um, distortion. And what we also found, and that was basically we found it here with our own speakers, um, when you have this resistor, uh, and there is a resistor in front of your loudspeaker, it gets less sensitive for amplifier changes. Mm. Um, that means very often um, the amplifier has less influence on the loudspeaker than on a on a loudspeaker that really needs the damping factor. Um, otherwise, the bottom end wouldn't be really nice. Mm. Um, I haven't tried many amplifiers with those loudspeakers, mm. but I tried a lot with our own um, and. I guess there's something in it um, that we still have to, you know, to, to look at. Um, but that is a little bit bigger project. Uh, so that sometimes decoupling the loudspeaker in a way from the amplifier uh, makes it easier. So you're then, saying, sorry, just, just so I'm clear, you're saying that the, the new Diamond 12s are less sensitive to amplifier changes or more? No, less. I mean, that was the idea to have it less sensitive. Mm. Okay. Um, because, I mean, you know, if you see a, a traditional, a traditional, um, let's say, name amplifier, 
mm. has an output resistance. There's always a resistor in of 0.2 ohms. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes your damping factor not very high. Mm -hmm. uh, modern transistor amplifiers have, I mean, you can have up to 10,000. Mm. Um, on, on class D amplifier, it depends a little bit what kind of technology we are using. Mm. Um, but when you have 0.6 ohm in series, then changes of 0.2 are less influential than having nothing, very low resistance, and you change then 0.2 um, from your amplifier. Hmm. Because um, I mean, I, I'm I'm just I'm, I guess I'm asking that question because I found quite a big difference in the sound. I won't say quality, but it's just in the sound between a blue sound power node two I, which is Hypex Class D and an NAD C16BEE, which is a Class AB, um, more traditional amplifier. And they, I mean, these speakers sound very different to me with those, you know, switching between those two amplifiers. Obviously, the topology of the amps is very different as well. So, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I mean, a loudspeaker shouldn't take away the difference in, um, mm -hmm. in amplifier quality or mm. a characteristic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we are talking just only about the damping factor. Yes, yes. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we, we normally work with the loudspeakers also with quite expensive electronics. Mm. Um, so we're not taking a 300 or 400 pound or euro amplifier, put it together and optimize it with that amplifier. Mm. Uh, we like to use really good amplifiers and, and hopefully... The consumer will buy an amplifier that has a good sound quality. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, with these Wharfdales being so, like, for me, affordable, like 200 euros, 250, whatever, I can't remember which, which one it is. But, you know, with, with sort of cons consumer audiophile logic saying you should spend most of your budget on speakers it makes it then i mean from that if we extend that logic then we should only spend about 100 euros on an amplifier and i for not for a moment do i think that a 100 euro amplifier even if it exists is going to do justice to a pair of these wharfdales because they're very very good i think you i think most people are going to end up spending more money on the amp than the speakers I think. yeah that might be possible that only means the speakers are too cheap <laughs> well, I wasn't trying to say that, but I, I guess yeah, it's one way of looking at it. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, but this is something you know that is coming from from Britain. Mm. I mean, because I mean, you know the the amount of of work that companies put into the entry level loudspeaker of from 150 to 250. I don't think you have it in any other country. I mean, you're, if you go to a yeah. German to a German hi-fi specialist mm. uh, i don't think they they have something like that well yeah so if i go to max schluntz for example i think the cheapest speaker that he will sell will probably be a pair of elac or something like that like the entry is a debut 6.2 or something you know it won't be you won't be able to buy a 150 euro mission or anything yeah. like that i mean you're right and this is see because i grew up in the uk and the uk entry-level speaker market was sort of my first 
taste of um, being an audiophile. And it's funny because you mentioned Mission. I actually quickly Googled them while we were chatting because m one of my very, actually my second pair of speakers ever was the Mission 760i. Um, I don't know whether you know these or whether you had... You had um, yeah, yeah, but I mean... I don't know all of them. I mean, I have sure. made too many of them over the years. Sure, sure. But I don't know whether you were instrumental in making those because that would be quite a, an interesting sort of twist in this story to think that I'd been listening to speakers that you designed years ago. But um, I don't, I, yeah, I mean, the yeah, you're right. The, the UK speaker market is very competitive at a very low price point, um, which you don't tend to see elsewhere. I mean, does that make, I mean, is does that make your job more interesting, Karl Heinz? Is that does that kind of put fire in your belly to kind of become better and better? Uh, definitely, definitely. I mean, you see, if you look back, we did a lot for mission. Mm. Uh, we worked on more than short. I, you know, uh, Tenoy was a company I worked with for for many years. So right. the, the the Mercury, the first Mercury. I mean, not the original original Mercury, but the mm -hmm. Mercury that came out in the nineties. Was done here in Germany, and yes, it was always fun to do an affordable loudspeaker um, that is really sounding nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, my my old friend who unfortunately died last year, uh, Kenny Shiwata, you know, mm. was was exactly the same because I mean, he had so much fun tweaking, you know, entry level amplifiers and make it really sound nice. And you get a, a system together for a little money that you could really enjoy music with. Um, and in a way, this is more fun than just hammering together the most expensive stuff you can find. But everybody can do that. I agree, which is one of the reasons, actually, I, I decided to you know take on this um, this assignment to look at the, the Diamond 12s, because actually I'm going to look at it from a whole system point of view. I'm not just going to look yeah. at the speakers. I'm going to build a system around them for my video. Um, and it is a tremendous amount of fun because you, it is true that, you know, you can get a, a fantastic sound for very little money with speakers of this ilk. And that doesn't mean that other things aren't better, but it does mean that, you know, the joy of having something for so little in whatever field you work in, I think is, uh, is, is, is very palpable. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned more than short. My very first pair of speakers before those missions was a pair of more than shorts. I think oh. in, in 1990, I bought those or 91, but I'm struggling to remember the name. It might've been three zero or whatever. I don't know. There was um, a very small one. There was a slightly larger one, but I had the very small one. It was about a hundred pounds and I got them from Barking in Essex. I can't, was it Super Five was the name of the store? I don't know. I, I I'm guessing now, but some I used to just flick through what hi-fi and just find the the you know the five star <laughs> the yeah. five star stand mount speakers, which I guess a lot of people in the UK still do. You know, they 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 kind of look for look for those and you know buy based upon that. But I think also, you know, my sort of hi-fi journey was um steered quite a bit by what I could find in richer sounds because I lived in Brighton for a while, they had Richard Sounds there and, and also mm. Richard Sounds in London. So I guess this is the market into which you, your designs predominantly sold. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, but. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, do you, do you ever, like well, after you've done sort of a more affordable loudspeaker for say Wolfdale or Q or whoever, 
do you then have a, an itch to go and do something crazy expensive? I mean, is this, this is why you have your your own loudspeaker brand? Is that to kind of exercise that part of your brand? Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I wish I could sell a book for 8000 Right. But you can't do that when you make them in Germany or you make them in Europe. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is, if you want to make something by hand in-house and, you know, test everything really and really go to the top of what is possible in production, mm. you end up with very expensive loudspeakers. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I had a chance to get a brand end of last year um, that is very traditional. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Epos. Um, ah, that's right. Yes, you, you acquired Epos. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah. Okay. And, and that is that is something you know where we can do some crazy things um, mm. because this was always a kind of crazy brand, but many people love it. Mm. Um, and then we can do something more affordable than the Things Team speakers, and we will do that definitely. I see. Okay, so you've got your your, your sort of Think Team speakers for high end consumers, but you still want to kind of do more affordable, fun stuff. And you're going to do that through EPOS? Yeah. I always wonder what happened to EPOS because I had a pair about 10 years ago. I think they were like, again, another affordable stand mount, all black. Um, I, I don't remember the model number. I'm sorry, but um, they were really good. And then, yeah, yeah EPOS sort of fell away. I, I, I didn't really follow what happened to the company, but. Um, I mean, um, Mike Creek uh, bought the company when he bought back Creek. Um, but like you know, I mean, he he did some loudspeakers uh, under the Epos name. Mm. Uh, but you know, once we it was announced that we took this company, we got tremendous response from distributors uh, from all over the world that huh. said, "Hey, can you make something like you know, like we like Robin Marshall did? Mm. Can you do something again in the same area?" Um, and I said, "Yeah." I mean, the last thing Epos needs is another two-way, boring, whatever loudspeaker. <laughs> um, right. And, and this is, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how much they told you from IEG because we will continue to work with them. Mm. And we are actually working on two models um, for Castle. Um, yeah. I don't. I'm not sure that I'm allowed to say that. I hope they don't kill me for that. <laughs> um, but this is really fun because I did I did engineering for Castle when they got bankrupt. That, huh. that tells you maybe it is dangerous to work with me. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems it seems to me, Karlheinz, that you've been fairly instrumental in in many, many, many loudspeaker designs, especially at the entry level available in the uk for the last i don't know 30 years yeah. i mean i guess the chances are if you're listening to this podcast in the uk and you're an audiophile you, you would have experienced your work um quite quite readily i think <laughs> i had this is what i mean like you was you're, you're somebody who's sort of just floated around in the background but everybody a lot of people will know of your work without knowing you know you are behind that work you see, yeah, but when you when you when you work as a consultant, I mean, this is what you have to do, mm. um, because 
you know, I mean, you make your money by designing it. And of course, I mean, you know, I, it is fun and it's nice for us when we get a five-star review or, you mm. know, you get a telephone call from the customer say, hey, this sells like hot cake. Mm. Um, but you have to be used to stay in the background. Um, mm. You know, when, when I was doing ALR, um, it was relatively easy because most customers came because um, because of ALR. They knew mm. that we do that and we got good reviews. That was not the same um, after we stopped ALR uh, many years ago. Mm. And so a little bit when we started with our new own loudspeakers was also to get a little bit back um, into the you know the forefront and not always mm. sitting in the background. And younger people do not even know who we are. Right. I, I will never forget, you know, I mean, I'm a member of the high-end society mm-hmm. and we have our yearly our yearly um, meeting, and some years ago, um, I was sitting there, and, and one guy said to me, I've never seen you before. Can you please introduce what you are doing? <laughs> and I was looking at him, and then I realized, I mean, he was too young. So, Right. I <laughs> That's funny. But you also, I mean, I, I know you've said, you know, before we started recording that you can't name names in this situation, but you do a lot of uh, work for car companies as well. Yeah, I mean, we we started the, the beginning of uh, automotive for us was uh, the cooperation with Name and Bentley, mm-hmm. um, and in, in in one or two years, I think I've spent more time with Roy George in a Bentley than I spent with my wife at home, <laughs> uh, and and so we 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 came into this automotive, and we we I mean we. We still work with the same group, um, and we try to do the same thing that we do in hi-fi, also in automotive. Mm. So we are a lot. We're doing a lot on on the standard systems um, because I think you know the cars, the, the stereo system in a car is the one is is, is something in the car that you always use. I mean, yes. I never had my radio switched off. Mm. Um, and so I think that everybody who buys such a car should have a really, really good sounding um, system, mm. especially with the new electrical cars. Uh, it's so much better. Is that because the noise floor is lower? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I was, I was doing a lot of uh, testing with the ID3 from Volkswagen. Mm. And it's amazing. You know, you can go fast and you don't have this typical noise that drives you nuts yes i mean it is the noise yeah i mean i'm not a big car person you should know this carl heinz i'm not but i do do, do know that you know electric cars are fascinating because they're so quiet um yeah and I, i'm, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to cars yeah. i don't have a bentley <laughs> i'm driving <laughs> i'm driving a volkswagen suv so and is it more comp is it more of a challenge to design a a system for a car um yes and no i mean of course the budget is very limited but that's mm. the same we have uh, everywhere at least on budget loudspeakers um mm. but what we have nowadays and and that developed nicely during the years we are doing that now is we have a dsp in the head unit that gives yeah. us all the possibility to tailor um the response curve to what you really should have in a car right and um 
And so we have, you know, we developed this sort of, I call it house curve or, you know, target curve, mm -hmm. where we try to find out how the response curve in a car should be. Uh, because most people think, ah, oh, that has to be flat. No, please not. Because having a flat one would be like, you know, taking a loudspeaker and listening to music in an unechoic channel. Huh. Yeah, when you, you know, even the, the, the nicest, flattest um, studio monitor is normally sitting in a, in a studio, in a, in a yeah, monitor room. Yes. And then you have all those uh, modes um, and, and yeah, the problems that you get on the bottom end which means that there's normally a lift of a few dB in the bottom mm -hmm. end. Yeah. And, and due to the fact that the, the air is also um, taking away some of the high frequencies, mm. um, you get a curve that is you know, falling off at high frequencies and get a boost at low frequencies. Mm. And our job in, for the automotive, for the car, is you know, to get a similar character when you're having a, in a listening room. Um, and that is not flat. Mm. So what is it then, if it's not flat? Does it tilt upwards, tilt downwards? Yeah, it tilts, it tilts down. I mean, you know, you have some bottom end between, yeah, depending on how low the whole system goes, um, mm. 20, 30 hertz, then to about 120. And then it drops down a few dB to 250. Mm. Then it runs relatively flat and then from a few kilohertz on it it falls off a few db um and depending on you know what car you do and what the character is of the brand it's a little bit more or less but that's basically the curve so if it and were if it were actually flat it would sound to the listener quite aggressive in the top end oh yeah definitely right and no bottom end <laughs> no bottom end <laughs> right no. it's like headphones you know i mean yeah uh, uh, there's there there's a guy uh, Sean Olive from Harman. I know I think, of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and Floyd Tool, of course. Yeah, they worked a lot on those things. Yes. So you know you can read a lot about target curves and yes. target curves on headphones, um, and that's similar in automotive. But again, do, I mean, how how far do the measurements take you, and how much then do you have to listen? I mean, you'd. I mean, tell me this. Could you ever design a loudspeaker system for a car or for home without ever listening? Could you just measure the whole thing all the way and then s ship it off to be manufactured? <laughs> is, is it possible? <laughs> I mean, no. I mean, it, you know, it depends on what you want to have. What, I mean, how, how critical you are. Mm. I mean, with the with the target curve that we use nowadays, and with the measurement setup, I think we could do something that a lot of companies would, you know, wave through and say, "Hey, that's more than enough for the standard system." Right. But the real, the real quality you get um, by listening, and you know, that is, it's not so much the response curve because I mean that is easy to get; it's the timing. Hmm. Um, it is unbelievable how critical timing is in, in a car. Mm. Um, you have the front loudspeakers and you have the rear loudspeakers. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you want to listen, you know, you want to have all the loudspeakers. So if you have the rear loudspeakers um, playing just normal, 
Mm. Um, the, the sound stage would always go to the rear. So you would sit somewhere in between, a little bit like a headphone. Mm -hmm. And when you start to, um, to delay the rear speakers by, I would say, between 1.5 and 2.5 and milliseconds, then mm. suddenly they, they disappear. So they, they, are, they go away. And when you sit on the rear seat, um, you know, instead of hearing something playing, you know, from the door to the left or to the right side, depending on where you sit, mm. suddenly uh, the sound set is going to the front. And it, you listen like you're sitting in the second row in a concert and something's really? coming to the front. Yeah. And this is tiny little, you know, delays. And more critical, subwoofer. Subwoofer is the absolutely nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, you know, you want to have the bottom end, you know, you feel the bottom end. And by delaying the subwoofer, you can shift, you know, the bottom end coming from the front, mm. coming from your chest, coming from behind you, something you don't want. And we, we really, you know, the, the smallest one we can do right now is 0.1 millisecond. Mm. on the standard system and you would say hey come on it's you know a handful of centimeters who cares about a subwoofer um you know such a delay but for the next generation i want to have half of it as a minimum um it is so critical and so this i have no idea how to do that on the measurement mm. because that is kind of happening in your brain Right. So when, when the rear speakers, we, we do something like decorrelate. So we take away the face relation to the front loudspeaker. Um, and then create something that is more like a ambience or whatever. Mm. Um, so that people are not really getting the music from behind, but from the front plate, uh, from the front and from the dashboard. So is it fair to say that most of your attention in designing a car? audio system is spent in the time domain um yeah that takes the longest time because mm. the response curve is easier to do interesting so does does this i mean does this inform your i don't know your interest your desire to create a um an active a dsp active loudspeaker for home for home use or is it is that not something you've ever really kind of thought about too much mm. i mean we have a you know the, the the speakers that we do the Kim and the Borg, mm. um, they have or we have a, um, a filter that you can use to compensate the group delay in mid high, mm. and compensate for the high pass delay that for the delay you get from the high pass at mm. low frequencies. Um, I mean, this is you know we have started. This just goes back to the time of, of Name, mm. when we worked with Name, and we worked on the Ovator, and we made the first filters to compensate for this group delay. Mm. Um, but, you know, that was difficult to, to implement because it would take more than one shark to do it properly, mm. a DSP. Mm. Um, and nowadays, we do that with Rune. Um, hmm. Because when you have, you know, I mean, you can't do it with a tiny little computer, but a Nucleus Plus yes. or whatever has an i7 in yeah. um, can run that filter 
um, and it does that also for DSD. And so we compensate the, the high-pass behavior. And the funny thing is that most people don't know that when the, the, it's rolling off at low frequency, it's not only getting lower level, it also goes far away. Mm. Um, and at low frequency, you can easily have 15, 17 milliseconds, so five meters or whatever distance. Mm -hmm. And so we do that for passive loudspeakers, and you put that into your um, into your rune system, and you mm. listen to it. And um, and you you know the timing and the position that the bottom end you know fall, plays together with the rest of the music. It's really nice. Okay, so if somebody's if somebody has a pair of Borgs, then you're going to be encouraging them to be become a rune user. So that they can, or is it absolutely mandatory they must be a, a Rune user so they can do all of this stuff? I mean, the data format is, is, a, is a WAV file, and that should normally work also on other systems. Mm. Like using this WAV format for FIR filters mm -hmm. and, and um, room compensation. Um, but we have experience now with Rune, and it works very nicely. Mm. Um, so I haven't tried it on others. You see, we don't sell that. I mean, mm. and we do that anyway. And um, we give that to dealers uh, so that they can help customers to play with it. Um, because I don't want to have, you know, this sent to customers with no experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they, they screw up their system by having the settings not correct. Um, but we do that, you know. Hmm. Interesting. So do, I have one more question for you. I mean, you've obviously spent a lot of time in the UK. Is that is that right? Um, not this year. Normally, no, but, yeah. but but generally in your life, Karl Heinz, as, as a speaker designer extraordinaire, you've spent you've obviously yes. spent a lot of time in the UK. I mean. Yeah. <sighs> How do you feel? <laughs> this is going to be a bit of a weird question, but I'm always interested in what Germans actually think about with this. It's like, how, how do you, what did you feel about the food in the UK? <laughs> <laughs> it's an odd one, but. <laughs> I mean, you see, I mean, I have no, no problems with, with British food as long as you have a good restaurant. I right. mean, you know, when I when I when I stayed in in Salisbury with with um, name, yeah, you know, we went out every evening and we went to Indian food and we went to pubs and we went to Italian, and then it was all really really good. Yes. When I came to UK in the early days, you know, when there was this Penta show uh, on on Heathrow in Heathrow, I've heard about uh, it. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and and you went to the to the hotel in the evening, you know, to the buffet to, to have something to eat. That was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> they, they managed to get taste out of a potato, which I think is really difficult <laughs> because I don't know what to do. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, I had my DNA checked to see where I'm from, you know, because my, my mother is uh, from eastern part of Germany, um, that is now Russian and partly Poland. Uh -huh. My father from the south of Germany, uh, and I'm yeah, and I'm a mixture of both. Right, and, and there's a lot of you know a lot of 
material <laughs> in me um, from Germany, mm. but the second largest part is from England. But you must obviously really value coming back to Germany and spending a lot of time here as well, because that's your, what's in your DNA, as you say. <laughs> yeah, but I still like black pudding, you know, that is, that not many people like here. <laughs> Black pudding and, is, del uh, is delicious. It's, it's delicious. Yeah. Yes, it's one of the yeah, one of the great things about the UK. <laughs> the only thing I can't really uh, do is uh, red beans. I mean, <laughs> you know this this beans that you get for breakfast that I can't eat. Oh, baked beans. Yeah, that is something oh, that doesn't go into really? my body. Yeah, really. Fit. So many years spent there, and you still haven't. Oh my goodness, you were doing so well, Karl Heinz, and you've you've ended on a clanger. <laughs> <laughs> But I, but I had haggis in, in Scotland, you know, during the days of Tenoy, we went to some very special restaurants. Right. So I tried all sort of things. And all the whiskey up there as well, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really a heavy drinker. I mean, I think I didn't know. I never drank a lot. Sure. Um, and I still don't. Right, right. But I like okay. a good whiskey if I can find one, but more at home and not yeah. when I'm traveling. Yeah, no, I understand. I'm mean, just, yeah. I'm sorry to throw these curveball questions your way, Karl Heinz. I just thought it was a, a good a good way to to finish after a very kind of nerdy, techie conversation. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I just you see, we just did. Oh, we did more than an hour. Yeah, it's it's good. It's yeah. a, it's a good amount of time. I'm talking too much. No, <laughs> you're not talking too much. Not at all. No, an hour is perfect, honestly, because when I first started doing these, um, it would be an hour, no, half an hour. And people would say to me, oh, John, you, you know, half an hour is not long enough. It needs to, because we can listen for in the car or when we're running. And yeah, so an hour, an hour and a half, no problem. I was, I was always watching your uh, YouTube videos. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always smiling because I see those weights that you put on top of your devices and you use those door stoppers, which I do as well, by the way. Really? Yeah, it's, of course. You know, it's funny because, I mean, I had to sort of back away from saying that they make a difference to sound quality because because of the tidal wave of responses in, you know, that I'm crazy. No, I mean... I do you know what I use as a DA converter? I have no idea. Um, uh, Dinner Frips, um, the small one. Oh, is it the is it called the Aries? No, Aries. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and you know, I saw the I saw the video on uh, I think Steve Gutenberg. Yes. Did it. Yeah. And and he was so fascinated. I said, I have to get one. Mm. And and I bought it and I got it. And it was fascinating because it did exactly what he said. Mm. It was um, it was very analog like, mm. but it was not. Let's say you know it wasn't the the best DA converter I had in my life. Mm. But it had something you know in the mid high and in the, the way it, it sounded that I really liked. And then I tried uh, to make it sound better. Mm. And with everything I did, it was getting better. And you know, I used a different food uh, feed. I mm. put it on a, on a, on, a, on a proper plinth mm -hmm. with good isolation. And the last thing I did is I put a weight on top of it, and that transformed it. You know, from a 
yeah, okay, it sounds quite good into something. Wow. Um, and, and from that day on, it, it stayed on my, in my setup. And um, <laughs> Because we're still recording, can you explain to me, to us, uh, why this is? I mean, my understanding is microphonics, but I could be wrong. Yeah, microphonics, yeah. Right, so this is where vibrations can mutate, to use a, a lazy word, mutate into electrical charge and yep. then cause interference. Uh, interference or distortions or... I mean, you know, um, Roy George from Name did this demo um, quite often. Mm. So he took a CD player, um, and he wasn't playing a CD, but he was shouting it with a loudspeaker. Mm. And then you could hear on the output what he played on the outside. And it was ah. just through vibrations going into devices. I do a lot with, um, you know, with streaming, and I built my own... Um, endpoints using computers mm -hmm. um, and optimizing the performance with different uh, Linux systems and so on. Mm. So I, you know, I really enjoy that because you can really go far. Um, and nothing from what we do could be measured, you know. I mean, power supplies, yeah. I mean, everybody knows that the linear power supply helps. Mm. Um, but if you change the the um yeah the memory chips in your in your endpoint and it changes mm. some of your streamer then you start wondering what's going on here it's funny you mentioned this because in the last week i've just started putting different linux distributions on old computers just to see actually what works and i've just put something called pop os on an old microsoft surface pro mm -hmm. 3 um and everything, even the touchscreen works, which is amazing. But I, I was I was googling for, you know, best sounding Linux operating system to put on a Nook that I have, and I came across two: Audiophile Linux and is it said is it Dafile? Do you say Dafile or D A file or Dafile? I don't know how you say that, but um... uh, Audio Linux. I think mine is called Audio Linux. That's the one that I use. Audio uh, Linux. Because okay. it is, they call it sort of real time system. Oh, the real-time um, kernel. Yes, I've read about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it works very well. I mean, a friend of mine with almost the same name, Rainer Fink from Marantz, mm -hmm. and we both, you know, like to play with uh, those things. And so uh, he tried a lot, and he came across with this Audio Linux. And it was crazy, you know. I mean, you put you put the whole thing into memory, but your hard drive is an SSD. So there's no right. moving target. Yeah. And it changes and it makes it better. And what happens is, you know, the tonal balance doesn't change, but the width and the depth and the height of the stage changes. Mm. And I mean, having an audiophile USB card, I use the SOTEM one. Yes, yes. Um, makes a huge difference. But is it really? And I'm not talking about Ethernet and and switches. Mm. So I I had for a long time I had the Sotem switch, mm -hmm. uh, but I was now now I use this media converter. What is it called? Sorrento. That, um, that's you know because I use um, cable um, uh, optical cable between mm -hmm. my router and my hi-fi system. Oh, you've got opti optically isolated. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. And and instead of having um, 
the Sotang, which was a switch, I now have only a media converter, and then I go via a Nordos cable to um, to my server because I'm using server and endpoint, mm. and the server has a second output, and I go. Entschuldige, ich habe dich nicht verstanden. And then I go to my my entity. <laughs> Uh, doesn't understand what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then all change the, the height, the widths, and, and everything. But none of this can be measured, can it? No. No. Why anyway, is that? Is I'm, it because is it is it because it's just too low level, or what? What is it that's? I mean, I, I mean, my 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 theory is that you know when we do measurements, we we do them all isolated. Mm. You know, we do a kind of serial process. You measure, you know, high frequency noise. You measure distortion. You measure all sort of things. Mm. But what we do when we're listening, we do a parallel processing, right? Because everything that is happening is going through our ears to the brain and gets processed there. And you know, it might be if you one day you find a possibility to, you know, to get interaction between all of them in measurement that you find mm. it. I have no idea. I'm not, I don't think I get old enough to find that out. Yeah. I mean, I find it endlessly fascinating. I mean, because, you know, you, you do meet people on the internet quite often who will tell you that because these two things measure the same, they will sound the same. And my experience absolutely does not correlate with that way of thinking. And it seems to me that yours is also you know, incompatible with that kind of thinking. And you're an engineer, so... <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, there was this, I think it was Otala who said, um, there are 120 ways to measure the amplifier. Unfortunately, we only know 20 yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I mean, I was, I was working on a, on a preamplifier. A friend of mine had a, had a broken Burmester preamplifier. And he brought it to me and said, can you help me um, to, um, to fix it? Mm. Um, and I recapped it um, because it was almost 30 years old. I listened to it, and then I put in one of those um, filters, power filters that we, uh, that we make here for our internal use. And it mm. made a difference like day and night. Mm. Uh, it really made an amplifier, a preamplifier from Rome, so that was 30 years of really sounding nice. Mm. And that's because in those days, nobody was thinking about that. Right, yeah, because obviously thinking changes all the time. Yeah, no, I think it's mm. that just you have all sort of signals on your power line. Mm. Uh, you have computers, you have LED lights, you have everything that makes a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. And yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, Karl Heinz. Let's let's um let's call time on it there. I think um we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and our guest today, Karl-Heinz Fink. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston, and music came from Ben Pitt.